Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. Today on Obsessed with Design, we talk with Mark Palmer, who joins us from the world of architecture. Mark is a senior associate at Callison RTKL in Washington, D.C., with a whole bunch of letters behind his name. So check out the show notes for those details. Today, we'll talk with Mark about how he uses design to affect good for society. And specifically, we'll talk a little bit about his side projects, A Place to Go and Looper. You can get all of today's show notes on our website at obsessedshow.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at Obsessed Show and I'm at Josh Miles. And while you're at it, head on over to iTunes and subscribe to Obsessed Show. We'd love to have a rating from you and help other people find the show. So without further ado, welcome Mark Palmer. Mark, welcome to Obsessed with Design. Thanks for being here. Oh, you're welcome, Josh. Glad to, uh, glad to be here. Hey, so for our audience, why don't you give us a little bit of information about your current role and tell us about what your role looks like as a designer today? Sure. Uh, so my name is Mark Palmer. I'm a senior associate. I'm an architect with uh, Callison RTKL in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, I work uh, in the healthcare group, actually. So um, mostly work on hospitals and clinics and things like that. So what does a normal day look like for you at Callison RTKL? Well, they're uh, pretty busy these days, but I think everybody's pretty busy. Typically, I try to get most of my creative work out of the way in the beginning of the day. Um, I seem to have a lot more energy and and free thought in the morning. So uh, working as a designer, I try to make sure to um, keep the email keep the email light in the mornings and then try to schedule my more, um, you know, mundane or repetitive tasks for the afternoon when I'm a little slower. So, um, you know, don't use up as much brain power there. <laughs> so how, when was it that you decided you wanted to, uh, work in architecture or how did you find your way into the design universe? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what, it was actually a happy accident, really. I have to admit, I didn't really know too much about architecture and design when I was in uh, high school. You know, the regular stories, I played with Legos and and loved building things when I was a kid. But I'll be honest, I didn't really know too much about architecture. Um, But when I I went to school, I ended up choosing architecture because it was something I, I was interested in. But um, once I actually got to, to college, it, it ended up being something that I really took to. I, um, uh, you know, pretty quickly I realized that it, it was a good way to really add value to something, and um, it was it was also a way to be creative at the same time. And so, you know, I was very fortunate. I went to a great school, Norwich University. Um, it was a small school. But they, they really pushed getting involved and, and working with your hands and really, you know, working closely with clients to, to really see how you can find value through design. And, and you know, I, I'll be honest, I got really lucky and um, really love doing it today. Yeah. Very cool. So we know a lot of folks in the architecture side of the design world and actually Laura Ewan from the uh, Communicaso podcast introduced us and she also has an awesome show. So I'll make sure and link to that in our show notes. You guys can check that out as well. Mark, tell me a little bit about like what your, what your process looks like. So in the healthcare um, design space, you know, what's, what's that look like for you? Yeah. So it's 
it's changed quite a bit over the years and it's, it's actually changed as I've gotten more involved. Um, you know, I've been there for about eight years now and as a, as a young designer, you really, your process was uh, really based on, you know, the people above you that are kind of directing you to do things. But as I've grown into more of a, a, a leader in the firm, my process has changed a little partly because I've been more involved in the beginning of phases of projects, but, but also because I've started to try to really push the idea of uh, working closely with the client and, you know, thinking outside of the box and trying to ask different questions than the client is used to hearing. Um, With healthcare clients, you know, a a hospital is a, a really complex machine, to be honest. And, it ends up that there's a, you know, it's, it's really easy to work by routine there and, and have a, you know, a method for how you design. And um, you really achieve a lot when you start asking questions that they're not typically used to hearing. Um, it sort of uncovers things that you might not in the typical process. So I've tried to really push that a lot as I've, I've moved up the, the ladder a little bit at our firm and um, gotten some pretty good results on that. Very cool. So Are there any current favorite projects that you're working on? Tell us a little bit about kind of what excites you in the healthcare space. Yeah, actually, I just started a new project. It's it's located in Cairo, and it's an academic building, and that's why it's a little more exciting right now. I've been doing hospitals for about eight years now, but um, this building is a is more interesting because it's a lot it's a lot less. strict than a standard healthcare building and, and being an academic building, it's, it's kind of going outside of the borders of what we typically do. And so you're able to move things around more and really question exactly what they're doing in the space. You know, hospitals tend to be uh, a D&T podium with a bed tower on top. So there's not a lot you can do there to change the way they operate. But an academic building is much different. You're focusing on research and uh, te- the teaching environment. And you can really start to think about how people are being taught and how people are doing research. And you can really come up with new ways to um, create space around those things. So that's been really interesting in a, a professional uh, light. Um, I've also been doing a lot more BD these days, which is uh, a new thing. And that's interesting because it's a little bit about relationship. But what I'm finding, too, is that it's also about um, putting your ideas out there. And some of the best um, strides we've made doing BD is is um, talking to clients about ideas for what's next, not just what we have done in the past, but talking about what we think is coming next. For those of you who are maybe not familiar with the vernacular, so BD would be business development, correct? Sorry about that. Yes. Oh, no, that's fine. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people will pick that up, but um, just so everybody can follow along there. So how did you find out that you were also good at business development or is that something that just sort of happened naturally? Well, I think it happened naturally, but I think one of the reasons I've been successful in this career is I've never really been afraid to talk to people or ask questions and not necessarily get in arguments, but, you know, you know, question why things are done a certain way. And um, that um, that that goes pretty far when you are. you know, engage in critical discourse with clients. Um, clients are these days are, are pretty savvy 
and they really want to know um, what value you're bringing to the table. And so our firm has actually done a good job bringing designers to the table when a lot of times it's a traditional BD role. Whereas now we're starting to bring in designers like myself and a few other designers in our studio. And that's, that's really helping to push, um, push ideas rather than portfolio. And I think that's pretty important when you are doing business development. So what kind of team are you usually collaborating with? Is it you know, just you on a project or are there usually multiple designers involved? Do you have engineers or what does that project team typically look like? So, so our project teams are pretty big these days. We've uh, we've worked at a, on a bunch of larger projects, and you know, bigger firms. They are a lot of times you have to you carry a lot of overhead, so you need to go after bigger projects, and that ends up with bigger project teams. And you know, we um, we have a pretty uh, facile studio right now, and, and we've moved people around pretty well. Um, but we have a, a, a pretty good team dynamic, I think. And, you know, we have both our designers and our um, our project managers and our project architects. But, you know, in healthcare, you have to do a lot of collaboration with engineers and medical planners. Um, you know, the, the stakes are a little higher in healthcare. Well, you know, in my world, if there's a big problem, there's a typo on the printed piece and in in your world, you know, a bigger problem might be the building falls down or, you know, in healthcare, there's a whole nother slew of issues. So what kinds of oversights are in place that, that you guys, I'm sure there's so many things that you have to deal with, but how do you navigate some of those things? Well, I think actually one of the, it's not a really new trend, but it's a, it's a trend that's taking, um, it's, it's a lot more prevalent these days. And that's actually uh, collecting data and doing research before you design. We're seeing a lot of metric-based design happening in terms of, you know, um, for instance, you you measure how far a nurse work, walks on a typical day, and then you try to reduce that to reduce stress on the caregiver because then in the end the caregiver will be able to give better care. So there's a lot of interesting programs out there. I mean, they have RFID chips that they can put on nurses and really track exactly how many steps they're taking. And then we can go back and look at the the diagram of where they've been walking. And we can really look at that and see where we can add value to, um, you know, achieving a more efficient workplace. So that's been interesting. And that's something that was sort of outside of my frame of reference as a designer. I, I grew up you know, mostly working on the exterior of buildings and what they look like. And so that transition to uh, working on the planning aspects of a hospital has been pretty interesting. You know, we've heard of the Internet of Things. This is like now the Internet of Nurses, which is a new thing for me. So that's that's pretty cool. So one of the one of your projects, Mark, that I was just really admired was um, all of the cool things that went into your A Place to Go project. So for those of us who are not familiar, tell us a little bit about A Place to Go and, and how that got started. Like, what is it? And, and tell us the story behind it. Sure. Well, I think the first thing um, that I have to tell everybody when we talk about A Place to Go is if you remember nothing, uh, please remember that poop is power. And uh, <laughs> a, pl- a Place to Go is a, um, is a project about a toilet. And um, this project actually started years ago um, when I was volunteering with Architecture for Humanity. I got involved with an organization in Kenya 
called Jitegame, and they, um, they're essentially a community center that provides for um, disadvantaged youth in, a, in the um, community, and they give vocational training, um, tutoring, education, um, and job placement to these kids. And they also have a, a meal program where they feed a lot of kids um, a lunch every day. Um, many of them, that's the, that's the only lunch or meal they get that day. So anyway, so we were we were working with them to help them design their new campus. They were uh, quite successful in what they're doing, but they were in a one-room house at the time, and so they needed help to essentially vision and design their new campus. So we we ended up working with them and doing a design workshop uh, where we helped them do this visioning session with them. And you know, over the years, um, it developed a pretty close relationship with them and. Um, there's this one thing that always stuck in my head, and it was actually the toilet at their existing facility. I wish I had a picture to show you, but um, it's a uh, it's a pretty sparse toilet, especially to us uh, Westerners. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it's it was quite shocking, actually, the first time I saw it, realizing that you know over 150 kids, both boys and girls, would use this one toilet every day. You know, they shared it, and it was essentially a pit latrine. And you know, it's a it's a little box over top of a hole. And when it filled up, uh, you move it to another location. And um, so anyway, so one of the things we we looked into doing eventually was replacing that toilet with a biogas toilet. And that's kind of where a place to go came from was our effort um, as a volunteer effort at RTKL to design and fundraise for the toilet so that we could make sure it would get built. And so it was a really interesting process. We ended up using the the design process um, as, a, as an educational awareness tool and kind of used that to really push our campaign to help raise the money to actually build it. So it was pretty neat. We, we structured the the design and all of the events around the campaign. And that was actually the driving force um, that kept us moving and, and got us a lot of um, press that eventually helped us uh, achieve our goal of raising the money. Um, so the toilet itself is pretty interesting. It is, um, it's, it's essentially a, a regular toilet and then it collects the waste underground. If this isn't too sick for your listeners, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, it collects- Who doesn't want to learn about poop? Exactly. It's actually pretty fascinating. And um, it essentially collects the waste underground and um, you add microbes to the sealed chamber and eventually the microbes consume the waste and then the um, the offput of that is methane gas. And the methane gas then goes into the kitchen where the stoves use it and then they cook the food that they actually use for the meal program. So it ends up being a resource loop um, that we're able to institute on their campus. So we're, we're pretty excited about that. Well, I'm sure just the fact of, of all the good that that project could do for a village like that is, is pretty incredible and enough to garner PR on its own. But I really think your ability to wield the um, poop humor throughout the website really probably helped drive a lot of clicks and a lot of eyeballs to your website. Yeah, that was actually something um, we didn't quite realize it uh, immediately, but during our, our initial meetings, we, we noticed we were making a lot of um, toilet humor, so to speak. <laughs> and, um, you know, we were having a really good time with it. And eventually we realized that one of the reasons we were doing that, not just because it was fun, but it also made talking about a subject like that a lot easier to discuss, right? A lot of people are uncomfortable talking about those things. And, 
even more so when it's when it's your campus that that they're doing that for. So we really wanted to make sure that that humor um, made conversation easier and that it was something a lot more um, facile to discuss. Yeah, no, it's it's such a I think admirable project and the fact that you could have fun with it and help other people enjoy <laughs> the fun elements of it too, I think is cool. So probably every project that you work on is not as, as much fun as a place to go, or, you know, occasionally you might hit that project, you know, like most designers, I'm sure you have your ups and downs. So tell us about a time that either you hit a particular rough spot or maybe what you do to kind of watch out for some of those uh, red flag things that you've learned from in the past. Sure. And I think um, one of the biggest red flags I see in the design process is um, is when somebody expects you to design at them. And um, one of the reasons it's a big red flag is, um, you know, you no one is in, in touch with the reason for design at that point. And I, I've worked with several larger clients, larger international clients that uh, unfortunately the way things work is they expect um, you to design and then come over and present a design to them. And, you know, you can, you can definitely, you can do a lot of interesting design that way, but if you're not actually making the design with the people you're designing for, then there's really no buy-in. And then you can come back a month later and the people will change their mind and you don't really have a leg to stand on because there wasn't buy-in in the first place. So one of my biggest red flags is um, when you start to work with somebody and the, the people you're working with don't feel the need to participate in the discussion and they're just expecting you to produce a product. And, and so that's something over the years that I've seen that can cause some issues when you're designing. That's really great. And I think that really can apply to any kind of design discipline or, you know, anytime you're making or recommending something and the other party just doesn't really have any skin in the game and they're not really committed to the outcome. I think that's certainly a danger. That's, that's really good, good insight. So outside of a place to go, you also shared with me a little bit about the looper. Can you tell us a little bit? Is that a RTKL project as well? Yeah, that was a competition a group of us from RTKL did a couple years ago. I think we did it in 2013, and uh, that, that's one of the one of my favorite projects that we've ever done, um, just because of how outside the box we sort of approach the project. Um, so the the competition was actually designed the greenhouse of the future, and um, you know, obviously we we did what all designers do. We pulled up Google and, and searched greenhouse, and it was incredible because. You know, all greenhouses are, are pretty similar in how they work, and, and rightly so. But we started to think uh, a little more deeper and said, okay, well, if we're going to design the, a greenhouse of the future, um, it should do more than just grow plants. And we started to think about what uh, what really went into that process of growing plants. And we started to think about um, how water is involved. And uh, eventually we stumbled across some facts that said, you know, 50% of the, the U.S.'s rivers and lakes are actually in a polluted state and unfit for um, aquatic life. And that was, that was pretty, it's kind of a big number. Yeah. It was a pretty incredible factoid. And um, so we started thinking about that and we realized that pretty quickly that, well, wait a minute, plants um, naturally clean water and clean the air just through growing. And so, okay, well, well, let's put that at the center of the project. And so 
the the looper ended up being this really great mashup of existing technology where um we put the plants at the center of the uh, a, a river barge essentially which so we took a big boat and in the middle of the boat we put a living machine which is essentially a um constructed biology that will clean water and so we would bring in water through the bottom of the boat cycle it through the living machine clean it, then send it through the rest of the growing cycle um, to grow other plants and vegetables and, and fish uh, for aquaculture. And then we would return that water back to the river in a, a cleaner state. So it ended up being a, a really well-received project. We got a lot of um, great thoughts and comments on it. And um, that's one of our favorite for sure. Very cool. So it sounds like you've had the opportunity to work on some really cool projects and your, you know, still brief career, even eight years into this. But what do you think are some of the dream projects that you'd like to tackle as you look forward? Well, actually, um, it's pretty similar to the looper. Um, I've actually just recently gotten into gardening and um, I have a new garden. I don't know if you can see it behind me on the camera. So I've been into gardening recently and I've become pretty fascinated with plants and growing up I, I really loved animals and I always thought plants were kind of boring but um, once I started a garden I realized that plants are just really slow animals. They kind of do all the same things that animals do. <laughs> Uh, just a lot slower and with less movement, but it's still really interesting. And so I, I've really gotten fascinated with the idea of food security issues. I think in our future that food is going to be a really big um, issue in the world and access to food and proper nutrition um, is going to be pretty important. And um, I've always been very interested in the idea of resource loops and how you can take the waste from one process and then apply it to another process that will then contribute to uh, either working another process or that other some type of cycle like that. And so uh, I'm very interested to work on projects in that sense. And I've always wanted to work on, you know, a community garden that actually, um, you know, that would produce food for the community, but then the waste would then, um, you know, maybe the waste would be used to, you know, I, I don't know, power something else, but uh, always very interested in that type of project. And um, that's a dream project for me right now. Very cool. That sounds pretty awesome. So where do you, where do you find inspiration for all these things? You're kind of a, uh, you know, a, a superhero of architectural designers out to save the world's food and water and, and poop. And that's, <laughs> that's a pretty great combo right there. Uh, uh, thanks. First of all, I appreciate that. Um, honestly, inspiration, again, I, I grew up loving nature and animals and, um, so, so looking to nature obviously is, is one of the big things, um, but also, you know, I come at it from uh, I've been pretty fortunate, to be honest, and, and I've, I've enjoyed a, a good life with a lot of um, a lot of freedom and responsibility. And um, I, I look at it as a way to give back and, and provide value beyond just sort of doing a desk job. I mean, you know, architecture and design is one of those things that ha can have a measurable impact on the way people live their lives. And um, that was something that dawned on me pretty early when I got into design. And that's probably why I enjoy it so much is that, you know, some of the best moments of your life are when you, you know, you go out to a project and and you're you're walking around and, and you're seeing people inhabit that that thing that you've designed and built. And, um, you know, seeing if it really makes a difference in somebody's life, 
that's always been a big driving force for me. Do you have any design heroes that have really guys or gals that you look up to? Sure. I've, I've, I've got quite a few. Um, you know, obviously I think Buckminster Fuller is one of my early favorites. And, um, you know, I, I like that period of the the sixties and the seventies for what it did for architecture and design with, you know, Archigram and Buckminster Fuller and, and Ant Farm. And the idea of really that collision of, of art and science and design really sort of taking, um, the, the field to a new level. So th- those are some of my more classic design heroes. Some of the newer ones, um, obviously Bjark Ingels from Big. I'm sure a lot of people answer that, but for, for good reason. He, um, you know, his whole philosophy of, of saying yes and just keep adding value to a project um, and finding synergies where, you know, two things that you think are completely separate from one another can actually combine and create more value where it didn't exist before. I mean, I think he does that really well. And and the result a lot of times is quite simple when you look at it, but there's an incredible amount of depth and thought that went into that. So he, he's more of a contemporary hero that I have. Um, and then uh, finally, probably uh, Sam Mockby uh, from Rural Studio at Auburn University. Um, uh, the late Sam Mockby, unfortunately, but um, he did a lot of work down there with um, sort of his students that ended up making a lot of good uh, in the community. He would, um, his studio basically went out and they did pro bono work as part of the uh, the learning process, but it actually produced real measurable um, buildings and installations for people. And, you know, I think one of the reasons we have such a good pro bono and public interest design field today is because of Sam Mockby and, you know, all the students that went through his program and came out realizing what design can do for a community. Um, so I, I, you know, if he were here, I'd definitely shake his hand for that. That's a pretty great, great list. And I, I think I could see you alongside Buckminster putting together a geodesic dome. That seems like right up your alley. So before we wrap up here, I wonder if you have any great piece of advice you'd like to pass along to some of the younger designers who are listening to the show today? Um, Sure. I think, um, you know, the first is to always trust your instincts, but don't take anything at face value. Um, I I think a few of the things I've said before probably alluded to this, but the idea of of really looking into the design problem. And uh, I recently learned a design tool called the five whys. And um, it's basically root cause analysis. And uh, the idea is that you ask a question and you, you get an answer, but then you ask another question about that answer and essentially say why five or six times until you really drill down to the, um, the, the root cause of what's happening. And so I think a lot of designers can benefit from that because, you know, a lot of times the, the obvious solution is just that it's the obvious solution and it might actually be a cause or an effect of a problem and not actually the cause of the problem. So if you dig a little deeper, um, you can hopefully uncover sort of the, the real root cause of something. So that'd be my advice is to just really, you know, do your research and, and dive down into it. Five wise. That's a good, good piece of advice. And I think my three-year-old son is really good at at least five wise, maybe six or seven, depending on how much sugar he's had for lunch. Yeah, well, there, there's a there's a theory that we peak when we're about five or six years old. That might have something to do with it. Oh, man. 
that means he's got more to go. Well, Mark, it's been a blast talking to you about your design process and learning more about what makes you tick. We'll be sure to include uh, all the things that you've referenced today in the show notes. And is there anywhere else that our uh, listeners can go to learn a little bit more about you or some of the projects we've mentioned? Uh, well, I mean, uh, play, both A Place to Go and The Looper have websites, um, aplacetogo.org and thelooper.com, I believe, are the, the websites. Cool. We'll be sure to get those links up on the page as well. Yeah, you might have to double check that for me. Um, but no, not really. I, I, um, I live a pretty quiet life in that sense. <laughs> are you on the Twitter I am on the Twitter, actually. You're, you're right. Now that you mentioned that, um, it's Arcs for Gorillas. Um, gorilla spelled like um, gorilla fighter, not the actual animal, uh, which I'm kind of regretting now that I think about that. <laughs> uh, and then I actually also ha- I do have a blog um, called Architecture for Gorillas. So I guess you're right. I do have a few things out there. Um, I haven't written a blog in a while. I haven't had a lot of time to write recently, which I should probably try to remedy, really. Well, you may have a few weeks before this post officially goes live. So maybe that'll be inspiration. Maybe maybe all the listeners will find a brand new post they're waiting for them after they listen to this episode. I will take that as a challenge. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for being obsessed with design. That's a wrap, guys. Show two is in the books. Thanks so much for joining us again today for our chat with Mark Palmer from Callison. RTKL. And head on over to obsessedshow.com to get all of the links and notes and things that we talked about today. We'll have all of that in the show notes. Also, don't forget to visit iTunes and subscribe to the Obsessed Show and follow us on Twitter at Obsessed Show. And I'm at Josh Miles. Obsessed Show is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon a branding agency located 13 floors above Monument Circle in the heart of downtown Indianapolis. Check us out online at milesherndon.com. And thank you so much to our friend Cassie Jo for providing her song Matchbox Girl that you're hearing right now and at the intro of our podcast. We're going to be giving away a few of Cassie's CDs, so be sure and tweet at us this week at obsessedshow.com and say you want to be entered to win one of Cassie's EPs. Want to hear more interviews like this one? Tweet at Josh Miles and tell me who you think I should interview next. Catch you next week.